0: Scripture Lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses... That doesn't seem right. 13 through 21. 13 through 21. Listen now for God's Word to you. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who sent me to be a judge and arbiter over you? And he said to him, "'Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions.' Then he told them a parable, "'The land of a rich man produced abundantly,' and he thought to himself, "'What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops?' Then he said, "'I will do this, I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods.'" And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasure for themselves, but are not rich towards God. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So let's start this morning with an informal poll. How many of you before this morning, and the Fritches, you're exempt from this because I know you already know this. How many of you before this morning knew about the superhero, the Black Panther? Oh, before this morning, before the sermon series, how about that? Before I mentioned the Black Panther. All right, who has seen the 2018 movie about the Black Panther, the origin story of the Black Panther? Who's seen that? All right. Maybe, not sure. So the Black Panther is maybe not the most recognizable superhero, Uh, certainly not as recognizable as Superman or Batman or uh, Spider-Man. And I'll be honest, I didn't know about the superhero, the Black Panther, until he was in a movie in 2015, one of the Avengers movies, and we'll talk more about the Avengers next week. Uh, But the Black Panther is one of the many creations of the comic book writer, Stan Lee. Stan Lee, so many of the ones that are recognizable, he created... A large number of them. All the movies that have come out, Stanley I think created most of those. And uh, the Black Panther as a superhero emerged in 1966, um, kind of at the tail end of a lot of the big things that happened in the civil rights movement. So you have this black superhero who emerges at the tail end of the civil rights movement. Um, and it's easy for us to I think associate the Black Panther with the Black Panther Party from that same era. Uh, they both emerge within three months of each other. Um, sort of like a chicken and an egg situation. Um, I think it's best for our purposes to not think of them as sort of um, explicitly connected with each other because they're not. They kind of emerge independently of uh, one another. And um, the superhero Black Panther, his comic book history is kind of convoluted and complex, at least how I've interacted with it. Um, It's one, I think, that's too complex for our purposes here this morning. So instead, what I'm going to focus on is that 2018 movie that tells the origin story of the Black Panther. And I know more than you than I expected has seen that movie. And if you haven't seen it yet, I would highly recommend that you go and you watch it. It is still, for me, not only one of the best superhero movies, it's one of the best movies that I've ever seen. Um, Someone described it not just as a superhero movie, but as a cultural moment that you have really for the first time a black superhero as the main character in a story. Not only do you have this black superhero, you have an all-black cast, a black director, a black producer. It was a really important moment that you have this superhero that African-American children can identify with in the superhero genre, something that people like me often take for granted, that I easily identify with most superhero characters because they look like me. So if you haven't seen it, go and see it. I promise my promotion of it is not any, I don't get any kickbacks for promoting it. But um, the Real to Real group is going to discuss it at the beginning of next month. So, this is an opportunity for you to watch it and then have some discussion around it. So, a great opportunity for you. Okay, enough of that commercial. Um, The 2018 movie Black Panther really tells the origin story of the superhero uh, Black Panther. And what the Black Panther really is, is he is the king of a fictional nation called Wakanda. Um, Wakanda. Uh, exists in sub-Saharan Africa. It is a fictional nation, but they're dealing with what most of sub-Saharan Africa deals with or lives with, that they are sitting on an abundance of a natural resource. Much of sub-Saharan Africa has an abundance of natural resources. But in the movie, it is the fictional element called vibranium. Uh, Vibranium is this fictional alien element that crash-landed on a meteorite 10,000 years ago it is the strongest, most versatile metal in the universe. So some of you might recognize Captain America. Do you guys recognize that superhero? You know the shield he carries around? That's made of vibranium. Yeah, see, you learn something new every single day. Something for your next Trivial Pursuit game. The things you didn't expect to learn at church today, exactly. Exactly. So, what the nation of Wakanda has figured out what to do is that because vibranium absorbs kinetic energy and sound waves, they've figured out how to release all of that energy, and it's allowed them to create huge advances in technology. Um, It's allowed them to create advances in medicine. It's um, they weave it into their clothing. Um, Vibranium, when it crash landed 10,000 years ago in this fictional universe, it also changed the ecology of Wakanda. It made the soil especially fertile. And it created what was known as the heart-shaped herb, um, this element that grows only in Wakanda. Don't worry, this isn't real. Um, The heart-shaped herb is not real. But whoever consumes the heart-shaped herb has these superhuman strengths of speed, agility, power. The Black Panthers, the kings of Wakanda, consume the heart-shaped herb, and that's what makes them into the Black Panther, the king of Wakanda. In the movie, it's T'Challa, He ascends the throne and he becomes the king of Wakanda and he becomes the superhero that is known as the Black Panther. And so Wakanda is really a technological utopia. Um, Not only do they have these huge advances in technology, but they also um, have this society of equality. It looks like what we want all of our societies to look like. But despite having this technology, this element that can change and transform the world around them, centuries of Black Panthers, the kings of Wakanda, have kept this element hidden, their deposit of vibranium hidden. And there's, no, there's, there's a reason for that. And this is where I think comics and superheroes get really interesting, is that they always have these kind of real-world parallels to them. Because what is true in the real real world of Sub-Saharan Africa is that because they have had this abundance of natural resources, that for centuries, Sub-Saharan Africa has been colonized and exploited for those resources. And it's still true today from from rubber, from diamonds, to this element that we use in our electronics, DVD players, TVs, cell phones. It's become kind of a, a conflict element. There's this history of colonization and exploitation, and so... The kings of Wakanda, fearing that, have hidden their element away. And the way that they've done that is because they are such a technologically advanced society, is they have built a hologram over the entire nation of Wakanda that creates an illusion. So when the rest of the world looks at Wakanda, it appears to be a third world nation, one of the the poorest in the world. And so as the movie begins there seems to already be this questioning of this policy of hiding away their resources. Because the the policy for centuries has been one of uh, isolationism and non-intervention. So despite the fact that they have this incredible wealth that could offer aid to the world, this advanced medicine that could offer aid to the world, they do not interfere when there are disasters and humanitarian crises. They also don't engage in armed conflicts when there are wars that rage around the world. But there's this question that begins to emerge at the beginning of the movie about whether or not Wakanda and T'Challa as the new Black Panther are going to reverse this centuries-long policy. And that challenge comes from two very kind of divergent characters in the story. The first comes from a woman named Nakia, who is a a former romantic interest of T'Challa. And she has been around the world in this kind of independent humanitarian Uh, mission. She's not doing it under the banner of Wakanda because Wakanda doesn't do those kinds of things. But she has seen the immense suffering, and the immense need that exists around the world. At the very beginning of the movie, she challenges T'Challa to reveal Wakanda to the rest of the world, to show who they really are, to offer aid to those who are suffering. But T'Challa resists and says, we will lose our way of life. The second challenge comes from a very different sort of character, from a very different kind of angle. It comes from a character named Eric Stevens, who is the like, long-lost cousin of T'Challa. I don't even think T'Challa knew he existed. And, and Eric Stevens grew up in the United States. He becomes an orphan, um, and he lives his life as sort of an assassin, a black ops operative, And he has spent his life assassinating people, overthrowing governments, and that sort of thing. And he has adopted the name Killmonger. Uh, Eric Killmonger Stevens. Some of you are grimacing. (laughs) Um, Remember, this is a superhero thing. This is the names people adopt. They're very very transparent in who they are. Um, And it makes him sound like he's a villain. But I would caution you, if you go and watch the movie, to not put him into that category so easily. He's a lot more complex than that. And what Killmonger wants to do is he comes back to Wakanda after something like 20 years away, and he wants to challenge T'Challa to become king of Wakanda, become the Black Panther. And he has his eyes set on reversing that policy of isolationism and non-intervention. And what he wants to do is he wants to take that technology that has created the most technologically advanced military in the world, he wants to utilize that technology to arm oppressed peoples around the world and cause a violent uprising. So the question in the movie is, what is Wakanda going to do with its abundance? What is it going to do with this element that it's in control of, that it has this huge deposit of, that could change the world for good or for bad? Are they going to continue that policy of isolationism, of holding on to what they have out of, out of fear of what might happen if others knew about it? Are they going to Arm oppressed peoples around the world? Or are they going to use their elements to offer aid? What does Wakanda do with its abundance? What do we do with our abundance? I think that's the the question that's at the very heart of this parable that Jesus tells us this morning. That Jesus tells this parable in response to two brothers who come to him who are having some dispute about their inheritance. One brother says to says to Jesus, "Tell my brother to split his his half of the inheritance with, or our half my the inheritance with me." And and Jesus says, "Who made me judge and arbiter between the two of you?" And I can't help but think of my mother in this situation. Um, Who at the end of a long day of parenting her four children, we would be fighting. We would try to involve my mom and get her on our side in the argument, and she would look at us and say, "Do I look like a referee to you? Do I have a whistle and a striped shirt? Work it out yourselves." Jesus says, be on guard, be aware of greed, because our lives do not consist in abundance of what we have, of what we can collect. And then he tells this parable about a rich man who had some land that one year produced abundantly, unexpectedly. We don't know why it produced unexpectedly. Maybe he had planted just the right crop, or maybe it had rained and sunshined just the right way. The weather worked to his favor, or Maybe he was especially attentive to that garden, to to those fields that year. But whatever it was, he, he has this unexpected windfall, this abundance that falls into his life. And when that happens, the man starts talking to himself. He says, what should I do with all of this that I've come into? I know what I'll do. My barns are too small. I'll tear them down and I'll build bigger ones to house all of my abundance. But while he's in the process of building these new vaults for all of his abundance, that's when God comes to him and his life is demanded of him. And Jesus calls him a fool. Why is he a fool? Let's let's stop for a second. Who is this rich man? See, my first instinct when I read a parable like this and hear the mention of a rich man is to start to think of him sort of like in the, the kind of caricature way we think of rich men, sort of like the like the Gordon Gecko kind of character from the movie Wall Street who said greed is good. Or maybe like the movie The Big Short that tells the real life story of how the, the housing bubble burst and how there were these this group of investors who saw it coming and, and bet on the housing market going under, and they got exceptionally wealthy while other people started losing their homes left and right. Or maybe I want to think of him sort of as a cartoon character like Scrooge McDuck swimming through his vault of gold coins or like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. But I can't quite picture the rich man in this way because there's nothing in this story that indicates that this man is unethical with money. There's nothing that indicates that that he's acquired his wealth by unjust means. He's not... uh, cutting his employees' hours so he doesn't have to pay them health insurance, he's not exploiting people. It seems like he just got lucky one year, like that small business owner who had been trying for years and years, and finally one year everything worked, and they were able to cut themselves a check, a paycheck. I can't quite picture him in this way, and And the reason why I can't picture him this way is because I realize that my desire to picture him sort of as this cartoonish caricature of a rich man comes from my own desire to sort of distance myself from my own relationship with wealth and money and possessions and abundance and to leave that unexamined. Because when I allow this parable to sort of function like a mirror, to allow it to to hold up to my own self and to see my life reflected in it, suddenly things start to come into sharper focus. Certainly I would never consider myself to be rich. I'm a preacher after all. Um, We're supposed to be poor, right? But I am a televangelist. Um, (laughs) Not at 9 o'clock, but at 11. (laughs) But as I start to examine my own life, suddenly I start to see all the abundance that's there. I, I look at the, the paychecks that Heather and I receive every two weeks. I look at the, the health insurance that I've been provided that the book of order requires you to give to me, and um, I'm grateful for that, um, especially in this time where my kids have had to have surgeries. And I look at the, the two cars I have, the house that I own, the, the beautiful children I have, the, the fridge that is usually full of food, and when it's not, DoorDash is always available. There's an abundance in my life. Who is this rich man? I am the rich man. That God has filled the world with an abundance of things, with a more than enough. More than enough, not, for, not just for everybody to have their daily, everyday needs met, but also for everyone to have thriving and joy and to, to flourish. And I have a large share of that abundance. Abundance is not a bad thing. It is an incredibly good thing. It is a sign of God's presence and God's goodness in our world and in our lives. The question, though, is what are we doing with our abundance? And that's where the problem begins to emerge in this parable, that this man seems to live in a community of one. He seems to live in isolation and alone from everybody else. He talks only to himself in the parable. What am I going to do with my stuff? I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. He lives in this place of isolation, and he, he says what sounds like a prayer, but it's offered not to God, but to himself. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods stored up for you. Eat, drink, and be merry. He's caught up in this litany of me, myself, and I wrapped up in his own self-concern. He has forgotten other people. He is concerned with only his stuff clinging to to his abundance. And again, this is a parable that is a mirror that allows my own life to be seen reflected in it. And I can understand that concern with wanting to cling tightly to what you have out of fear of it not being there tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now or a year from now especially in this time with massive inflation, high cost of living, where every trip to the grocery store or the gas station produces a little bit of anxiety. I can understand that desire to want to build a bigger storehouse for all of the abundance that God has given to me. Because I think what lies in our subconscious is the idea that if we build bigger storehouses for our abundance, if we cling tightly to what we have, then we might experience some peace of mind, some, fear, some freedom from the worry of, will we have enough? But mindsets of scarcity are so pervasive that no matter how much we have, no matter how big our storehouses or barns become, we will always feel like we don't have enough. That this man lives in a mindset of scarcity that he thinks that he can build bigger barns for himself and it'll give him some freedom from that fear of, does he have enough? But all the while, as he takes on this building project, beyond the threshold of his own self-concern, there are the myriads of the poor and the hungry longing to be filled. There are the unloved, the unjustly treated, longing to be acknowledged and recognized. St. Augustine said of this man, he didn't realize that the bellies of the poor were a better storehouse than his barns. This man is a fool because he lives with a mindset of scarcity, this fear that he will not have enough. The question is, what are we doing with our abundance? What are we doing with the good things that God has placed into our lives? What does the nation of Wakanda in the fictional movie The Black Panther do with their abundance? Do they decide to arm oppressed peoples across the world and cause a violent uprising? The answer at the end of the movie is no. Do they continue on in their centuries-long policy of isolationism and non-intervention, hiding away what they have? The answer there, too, is no. Because as the credits roll, King T'Challa, the Black Panther, stands in the United Nations and reveals Wakanda's true identity to the world with a promise that they will offer aid and help to make the world a better place. What do we do with the abundance that God has given us? Or maybe a better place to start is, do we see the abundance of God at work in our own lives? Do we ever stop to think about all the good things that God has given to us? I think Sometimes our lives get so busy and so hectic with responsibilities and things to do that we don't often stop and see the abundance that God has given us. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds. I'll keep the time for you. Don't have to worry about the time. What abundance has God given you? Where do you see the good things of God in your life? I know that you all nine o'clockers love to talk, but just do this silently, Um, 30 seconds. that's 30 seconds. 30 seconds is probably not nearly enough time to think about and reflect on all of the good things that God has given to us. That God is a God of more than enough and not a God of stinginess and scarcity. It's what I try to remind us every time we come to the communion table. That God is a God of more than enough. That every time we come to the table there's more than enough love and grace and bread and juice. There's more than enough room for you around that table it's meant to help remind us that throughout our lives that there is more than enough, that God is a God of abundance, and we have more than enough. It is incredibly easy, I think, to fall into a mindset of scarcity, this worrying about whether or not we're going to have enough, especially in this time where Things feel so uncertain and unstable. It's, it's an understandable thing to want to hide away the good things God has given us because we're afraid if somebody else sees it that they might judge it. It is easy to live with a mindset of scarcity. But let me suggest to you all this morning that the world has enough storehouses for the abundance of God. That the world has enough mindsets of fearful scarcity and hoarding away the good things of God. It doesn't have enough people who understand that God is a God of more than enough. That there is enough of a mindset of fearful hoarding, but not enough of a mindset of generosity. There are not enough people opening up the storehouses of abundance. What are we doing with our Abundance opening the storehouses of all the good things that God has given us. Because when the storehouses are open, that's when the poor are careful, that's when the hungry are filled, that's when justice is done. When the storehouses of abundance are open, that is when a community like this one begins to form. That is what makes life and mission and ministry at Greenfield Presbyterian Church possible, when we open the storehouses of abundance in our lives. If you want to see what opening the storehouses of abundance can do, just check this out.